could turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 to 39. The passage says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began to saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Let's ask Him for help. Lord God Almighty, again, we ask Your help that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Let us see the Savior more clearly this morning. Let us hear His cries. And let us respond with a heart of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, my father bought me and my brother-in-law and my brother tickets to go watch the Cleveland Browns. It was a Thursday night game. It was, I think, one of the first Thursday night games. And, uh, because I'm usually kind of busy on Sundays. And, uh, It was something about seeing the game live and in person. Hearing the crunch of the pads on the field. Having a close seat where you you could observe how tall the players were. It was impressive. I had only watched NFL games through the television. And there's a very real sense in which Mark... In Mark chapter 15, he wants us to be at the scene. Mark, more than any of the other authors of the gospel, really labors in his writing to make sure we feel like we're there when Jesus is teaching. That we feel like we're there when Jesus is crying out. When Jesus, as we're going to see here, is hanging from the cross. In fact, he does this by even grammatically using what's commonly called the historical present tense. It's, it's one thing to tell a story and say, this happened and then that happened. But it's another thing to say, he went in the room and he moved from his chair. 
And to tell a story in the present tense, as Mark often does, helps us to feel like we're there at the scene. And he does so similarly here in Mark chapter 15. And Mark is writing so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how he starts his gospel in chapter 1 verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus being the Son of God. And here we are at the end of the story, and He wants us to sit there at the foot of the cross and to hear the words from Jesus' lips and to see the cosmic disturbances. And so let's try to place ourselves there. And, And my aim this morning is that you would see Jesus as abandoned by God, that we're going to look at the abandonment of the cross, and then we're going to look at the acceptance of the cross and then the appropriate response. So let's look, first of all, at the abandonment of the cross. Notice in verse 33, <clears throat> when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour. Now, we might read that at a first glance and think, well, it's talking about six in the evening. That's not what it's talking about. The Jewish day began at six in the morning. And so the sixth hour would be high noon. And the climate in ancient Palestine uh, was that it was dry and sunny all throughout the year. It was a climate very similar to Los Angeles, a, a kind of a desert climate where it's very rare that you have an overcast day. I know that's hard for us to imagine in northeastern Ohio. But it was the typical weatherman forecast was 80 and sunny every day. And so here it is, the sixth hour, which is high noon. And at high noon, it says that darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, whole land could be translated the whole earth, it could be translated uh, just the the whole area. We, We can't say for certain, but either way, there's this kind of cosmic disturbance taking place here in which there's blackness and darkness so that everybody there can barely see the hand that is in front of their face because of the darkness. And this is God's way of saying something here at the this climactic event. What is God saying in the midst of the darkness? Well, we know darkness often in the Bible speaks of God's judgment. In fact, listen to these uh, different passages that speak of hell as a kind of darkness. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11 and 12. Jesus says, I say to you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So hell here is being described as outer darkness. Matthew 25, 30, after the parable of the talents. Jesus says, throw out the the worthless slave into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see this also in the epistles in 2 Peter 2.4 uh, that speaks of, uh, for if, they, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. The same thing in 2 Peter 2.17, speaking of hell as the place of the blackness of darkness. And so regularly God's judgment or hell is referred to as a place of darkness. And so, 
when we see the darkness here that comes over this whole land, we're supposed to be reminded of judgment. Not only that, you have to keep in mind the historical context. This is Passover week in ancient Israel. In Passover week, if you were a Jewish person, you would recall that one of the last plagues before the Exodus, which remember the Passover is celebrating, reminding the Israelites of the time in which the blood was put on the doorposts and the lentils and God's judgment passed over the people as He struck the firstborn son in Egypt. Well, one of the last of the plagues during that time period was when God shut the lights out over Egypt. And you remember each of those plagues was a kind of mockery of the Egyptian deities. And so one of the deities, one of the gods they worshipped was Ra, the sun god. So God's saying, you worship Ra, okay, let me shut the lights out for several days. And that's what He did. And so this is the last time in biblical history in which there was blackness of darkness coming over the face of the earth. And so, keep in mind the significance of this. If you are a Jewish person here at the foot of the cross and you see the blackness of darkness coming over the face of the earth as Jesus, this claimed Messiah, is hanging on this cross, you would immediately thought of God's judgment is coming down. It would almost be like, uh, imagine... This upcoming September 11th, you hear reports over the news or alerts on your phone that all planes are being grounded and airports are being shut down. Well, immediately your thoughts are going to go, oh, something's happening again, much like it happened on September 11, 2001. So when this darkness comes over, the, the, the question would immediately rise, who, God's judgment is coming upon somebody or something, and, and the obvious question would be, who is it coming upon? Is it coming upon the Romans for their evil deed in crucifying Jesus? Is it coming upon the Jewish people for their wickedness and their deception and handing Jesus over to the Romans? Mark suggests to us who the judgment is coming upon by the next words that are recorded in verse 34. Because it says at the ninth hour, after this three hour period of darkness falling upon the face of the earth, Jesus cries out, hanging from that cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Again, Mark wants us to feel like we're right there. And so he records the exact words that Jesus uses from the cross. Those Aramaic words that Jesus would have grown up using as his native tongue. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. But then Mark translates for his Roman readers and says that uh, Jesus was saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, the judgment that was coming down was not upon the Romans, was not upon the Jews, but the judgment that was coming down that was symbolized in the blackness of darkness coming over the face of the earth was bearing down upon Jesus. 
And it's understood by His words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is bearing in His body the full fury of hell for every sin of every believer who would ever believe. Now, of course, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, you might know that Jesus is actually, in in uttering these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, where David is writing, and Psalm 22 is a fascinating psalm because David is writing, and and, and it becomes obvious as he's writing that he's not merely writing about his own experience, but he's writing about the experience of the future son of David as he's hanging on the cross. That's how the psalm starts out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's parts of the psalm that, that speak of his, his, uh, the dividing of his garments by lots. Uh, his hands and his feet being pierced and being surrounded by enemies. And all these were the experience of the greater son of David on the cross. But... Is Jesus merely, you know, citing Bible verses in the same way that we might cite Bible verses in hours of temptation? No. Because what's going on here is something grand and something climactic that, that Mark has already been hinting at all throughout. Not, not hinting at, he's been writing it in bold colors throughout the Gospel of Mark. What's going on here is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. When He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that Jesus was giving instructions that He was going to the cross. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, chapter 9 and verse 31, chapter 10 and verse 33, Jesus instructs His disciples saying, He's going to the cross, He's going to die, He's going to rise. And in, in Mark 10.45, Jesus gives us an understanding of why He was going to die, namely as a ransom price to be paid. There was a bounty on Jesus his head to pay for the sins of others. We also see this when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, which would be a picture of his death in Mark 14, 24, when it says, when he says, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. We see it in Mark 14, 27 as Jesus cites from Zechariah when it says, you will fall away because it is written, quote, quoting from Zechariah, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus tells His disciples, you're going to fall away, you're going to depart when I get arrested. And He quotes from Zechariah, Namely, that the Lord will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That God will strike the shepherd. And this is what we see taking place at the cross. We also see it 
And here it's in the agonies of Gethsemane. As Jesus cries out in the prayer three times over, Father, Abba, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup speaking of God's wrath being poured out. Jesus praying, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And so over and over in the Gospel of John, or Gospel of John, we've been in John, we're in Mark. The Gospel of Mark, Mark is communicating through the, the, the what he's recording of Jesus that what's going to happen in the cross is namely, Jesus is going to bear the wrath of the Father. He's going to bear the full fury of hell upon the cross. And so it's no wonder that blackness of darkness comes over the face of the earth. It's no wonder that we could hear the words of Jesus, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, because Jesus is testifying that He, in in the wonder of the cross, is being treated as a sinner. In the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What's happening here, wonder of wonders, is Jesus is being abandoned by the Father, forsaken by the Father. Not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. In the the words of one lyricist, So forever will I tell, in three hours Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. Forever will I tell, in three hours Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. You see, we're able to grasp something of the physical sufferings of Christ as we read the gospel accounts. We're able to read about the scourging and and then do research on what a Roman scourging with the whip would be like. We're we're, we're able, as one medical doctor did some years ago and and studied crucifixion and and, and all the agonies that are there and the physical sufferings. But friends, those physical sufferings are are but the peak of an iceberg that dips, that, that comes out of the water. But below the water is a mountain of reality of Jesus' suffering, this abandonment by the Father. A a, a kind of reality that, that the Scripture doesn't explain all the profundities and immensities that are there. But only to know that somehow, wonder of wonders, in those three hours on the cross, Jesus was bearing all your guilt and my guilt. All the hell that we deserve. Every sinful thought. Every vile action. Every unbelieving thought was being borne on His back for every believer. So that you can stand before God 
and say with the Apostle Paul, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the words of D.A. Carson, Jesus cried the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that his children would never have to utter those words. Friend, this is good news. There is one who has bore the weight of hell so that sinners would not have to. This is good news that He endured the agonies of Calvary so that we would not have to suffer the agonies of hell forever and ever. But you may be sitting there thinking, I don't mind being forsaken by God for all eternity. In fact, I would love for God to just leave me alone. My friend, you have no idea what you're saying. Because God's forsaking of humanity in hell is a forsaking them in the sense of withdrawing all of His graces and kindnesses from them. You see, here in this middle world where we live between heaven and hell, God showers His grace upon the righteous and the evil, upon those who are believers and unbelievers. And and there's so many pleasures and graces that we get to experience in this world. So many mercies, so many friendships. But in hell, that mercy will be cut off. And it will be only justice. And for the unbeliever, there's a very real sense in which this world right now is the closest they will ever get to heaven. And for the believer, this is the closest we will ever get to hell. And as a believer, this should help us to see both the beauty and wonder of what Jesus did for us, but also the sobering reality of how awful our sin must be. I mean, if this was what was needful for Jesus to be hanging upon the cross, being forsaken by the Father, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For Him to endure that, how great must my rebellion be? To call for such a high sentence. And then notice we see here that Jesus breathes His last. He gives up His own life. Friend, how seriously do you take your sin in light of the cross? I mean, imagine imagine a person who has diabetes and hasn't taken care of themselves and been strict with their diet and exercise and they wind up ruining both of their kidneys and uh, they need a kidney transplant. They're not able to find any matches and then finally a friend of theirs goes and gets matched and this friend decides to donate one of his kidneys to his other friend. 
And in the operation procedure, this, this friend who's donating his kidney winds up dying in the process. And that person who receives their kidney goes back to eating the same kinds of foods, doesn't take care of himself, and winds up ruining the same, ruining this kidney that was gifted to him in the same way he ruined his own kidneys. We say, what a waste. What a waste to not cherish the reality of this gift that had been given to him. In a similar way, when we don't seek to live lives of obedience to the Savior in light of His cross work for us. Now, it's not ever in the sense that, well, Jesus, you did this for me. Let me pay you back. My friend, you can never pay back Jesus. But it's the reality of, of cherishing what Jesus has done for you and then out of love for Him, wanting to live a life that honors Him. Friend, He was abandoned by God for you. But secondly, not only do we see the abandonment of the cross, we see the acceptance of the cross. Notice in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark here records Jesus' loud cry. Now, almost certainly this loud cry is recorded in the Gospel of John as Jesus crying out, It is finished, paid in full. And then another supernatural event takes place as Jesus breathes His last and gives His life. We saw the cosmic event of the darkness that comes over the face of the earth and people aren't able to see in front of them. But now... Here's this other cosmic event where the veil of the temple is torn in two. Now we might be tempted to think, well, this could easily be attributed to some kind of cuckoo disciple of Jesus or some kind of vandalism taking place in the temple. But that's an absurd kind of thinking. When you consider that this was the part, this was the veil of the temple between uh, what was called the the, um, the the court of Israel and the holy of holies, this was the veil that hid God from people. It was the most sacred part of the temple, which only once a year, one man went into that most sacred section of the temple on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when a goat would be sacrificed and lots would be cast between two goats. One would be sacrificed unto the Lord. Another would be sent out into the desert. And this goat that was sacrificed before the Lord the high priest would go into that Holy of Holies only one day of year. It's that part of the temple that is torn. This part of the temple 
is spoken of in Exodus chapter 26 with the building of the tabernacle. In verse 31 it says, You shall make the veil blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen and it shall be made with cherubim the work of a skillful workman. So this veil, this curtain was, was about the thickness of a telephone book. If you remember what a telephone book, I know only half of us remember what those are. <clears throat> but it was that thick. And notice Mark records it's torn from top to bottom, evidencing that it's coming, this tear is coming from heaven down, not from earth up to heaven. This is not man ascending to God. This is God making the way open for man to enter into the Holy of Holies. And the significance of this is tremendous as as Moses records on this veil being the cherubim because this takes us all the way back to Eden. You see, the, the tabernacle and later on the temple, they were built as kind of replicas of Eden. Man's meeting place with God. And you remember in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against their Creator, they were driven out of the Garden east of Eden, and God put cherubim at the doorway of Eden with flaming swords, basically saying to man, you cannot get back in. There is no entrance back into Eden. And then some years later with the building of the tabernacle and later with the temple, here again we see these cherubim and they're on the curtain. Again, symbolizing this is Eden. This is the meeting place with God. And if man is to approach God, he enters once a year and he must enter through priest and through sacrifice. And then now here in the Gospel of Mark, Thousands of years later, this veil is shred in two, highlighting the reality that man now has access to holy God also through priest, also through sacrifice, namely the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, namely His sacrifice upon the cross. The author of Hebrews alludes to this kind of imagery here in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. It speaks of this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the high priest, has gone into the Holy of Holies and has made sacrifice and now the temple veil is torn in two and man can have access to Almighty God through priest, through sacrifice, through the Lord Jesus. Also Hebrews 9.6 or 9.11 But when Christ... The Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
Friends, this is good news. The negative reality, Jesus was abandoned by the Father. Blackness of darkness comes over the face of the earth. Jesus is bearing hell. But the good news, because of this sacrifice, the veil is torn and you can have access to holy God in heaven. You can have the promise of eternal life because of this sacrifice. You can approach holy God because your sins have been paid for. But there has to be the appropriate response. Now we're going to see two different responses in this passage. The first is what I would call an inappropriate response. Notice verse 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. So these are some bystanders. Now, almost certainly these would have been Jewish bystanders. They wouldn't have been the Gentile Roman soldiers. It's obvious by their reference to Elijah. They're hearing Jesus say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and they're thinking that maybe they hear him saying, Elijah. Now, this could be that they're mocking Jesus. Oh, you want Elijah? But I don't think that's what they're doing. You have to understand Elijah was something of the patron, patron saint in Israel of lost causes. Uh, he also uh, was one who was expected to accompany the coming of Messiah. And so they may think And keep in mind, it may be the idea, they're thinking, well, maybe Elijah is going to come here. Maybe Elijah is going to come and rescue Jesus from the cross and and begin to institute the overthrow of this Roman bondage here. And I think there's evidence for that by what they do in verse 36. After they say... Uh, perhaps he's calling for Elijah, verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. In other words, give him something, prop him up, perk him up. Let's help him out here. Maybe Elijah will come. It would appear they're trying to give him this vinegar to enliven him and cause his life to be extended so that they could see if Elijah comes and rescues him. At worst, it was mockery. At best, it's believing that if he's Messiah, he would be delivered by Elijah because Messiah would never die by crucifixion. Either way, it's unbelief. It's either the unbelief of mocking Jesus or it's the unbelief of an ignorant understanding of what Messiah would be. Namely, a political freedom fighter to take away the Roman bondage. In other words, they had a belief in a kind of Messiah that was the kind of Messiah that they wanted Him to be. 
not who he was in reality. Which is not all that different from so much of the unbelief we see today. Many people believe in Jesus. The question is, what Jesus do they believe in? Do you believe in a Jesus who will give you a more prosperous life? Do you believe in a Jesus who will fix all of your problems and difficulties in life? A Jesus who will give you a better job, a better marriage, better children? That's not the Jesus of the Bible, my friends. Jesus doesn't promise you prosperity in this life. He promises you prosperity in the next life. What Jesus do you believe in? This Jesus had to be abandoned by the Father so that we could be accepted in our greatest need to be dealt with, namely, our guilt before a holy God. Reconciliation to this God. Access to the Holy of Holies. And Jesus meets that need. He meets your greatest need. You might not have thought that's your greatest need, but it is. I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's Word, your greatest need is to have your sin dealt with so that you can be accepted before God. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's not all He does, but that's the core of what He does. One day He's going to fix it all up. That's the inappropriate response. But then notice an unlikely candidate with an appropriate response. Look at verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. By the way, do you remember how I said the Gospel of Mark began? Let me refresh your memory. Mark 1.1 The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here we have bookends in the Gospel of Mark. Mark writing to a Roman audience... At the outset, he highlights, he's writing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Namely, he's the Son of God. By the end of the gospel, a Roman, a Roman centurion crying out, Indeed, this one was the Son of God. A response of faith. Not only that... The last time, it's fascinating, only two times in the Gospel of Mark does he mention tearing take place. The first one is in Mark chapter 1 in verse 10 at the baptism of Jesus when immediately it says that Jesus was coming up out of the water and he saw the heavens 
opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. The heavens opening is the same phrase we see later on here in the Gospel of Mark. The heavens tearing open and then a voice from heaven from the Father saying, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Fast forward now to Mark chapter 15 and we see not the heavens being torn, but the veil of the temple being torn in this uttering, this is the Son of God. Not from the voice of the Father, but now from the voice of a Roman centurion. This Jesus who is the Son of God. Mark wants us to see Him as the Son of God. And he gives the appropriate response of the centurion. Now, let's let's think here. This is a shocking event taking place here. Here this Roman centurion who who no doubt much of his life, I mean, this was his assignment. He was there at the foot of the cross watching all these events take place. He had an odd skill of giving oversight to crucifixions. He was a man who his job was to make sure somebody was put to death. I mean, who knows how many times he had seen People being executed through crucifixion. Not only that, no doubt his involvement with Jesus' crucifixion. Was he one of those soldiers that was there whipping Jesus' back over and over till it was a bloody pulp? Was he there crafting that crown of thorns to place upon Jesus' head? To put that robe on his back? To put that reed in his hand? And to mockingly bow before him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! We don't know all of his involvement, but it's likely that he, if he was not directly participating, he was right there involved with the mocking and the jeering. And yet, here he is confessing Jesus as the Son of God. Now, notice what Mark says here. What is it that prompts or provokes his faith? In verse 39, the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last and said, Truly this man was the Son of God. What was it about Jesus? I mean, again, he had witnessed many people dying. He saw it over and over. His life was at first-hand witness to watching people be executed. But what was it about the events that were taking place and the darkness falling over the face of the earth and the cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and the other cry, and him seeing Jesus breathe his last, and he places his faith in Jesus. 
We don't know. But all we know is here He responded with a heart of faith. He found acceptance with God through Jesus. Now this is amazing because Sometimes we can be tempted to think that my sins are too big for Jesus. I mean, God sees the things that I have done and He would never forgive me for the things that I've done. But here we see this testimony from the Gospel of Mark. This man who is directly involved in the murder of God's Son. And this one who's directly involved in the murder of Jesus experiences forgiveness from this great God as he humbles himself and confesses Him as the Son of God. Friend, whatever cosmic crimes you've committed against Almighty God, whatever dirty deeds you've been involved with, if you would but come to Him with humble faith, the humble faith of this centurion, and confess Him, as the Son of God. Confess Him as your Savior. Confess Him as the one who was abandoned by the Father so that you could have access to the Father. If you would but, like the high priest in Leviticus on that day of Yom Kippur, would press His hands into the head of that goat before it was sacrificed. If you would but press your hands into Jesus and transfer your guilt to His guilt and accept His sacrifice on your behalf, you will be forgiven. You will experience the promise of access to this great God in heaven. But also I must say, if you refuse this gift, this offer of grace, What will God do to you? If He crushed His own Son and poured out the fury of hell upon Him for those three hours suspended between heaven and earth when darkness was over the face of the earth, if He did that to His Son so that rebels like us can be forgiven, if one refuses that gift, that offer, that deal that's on the table, there will be hell to pay for such a refusal. So friend, don't refuse it. Believe it. Trust in it. Bank your life and eternity upon it. I can just imagine this Roman centurion walking home, perhaps with the hammer still in his hand, looking at his hand in wonder that he, involved in the crucifixion of Christ, 
could come to have faith in this Christ. May we too have that same kind of wonder. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, indeed as Watts wrote so many years ago, at the cross, at the cross where we first saw the light, the burden of our heart rolled away. It was there by faith we received our sight. Lord, you've given us eyes to see. And our burden is rolled away. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close by singing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.